Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. I'm here again with Haven Pell, also known as the Pundificator, who is widely read on his blog. And we're here to talk about globalization today. Haven, you've been doing a little bit of work with this, and you came across a recent study that I thought would be really interesting for our listeners. Maybe go through it a little bit for us. Thanks, Fraser. Nice to be with you again. Likewise. Somehow, in the various things that I consume, about once a quarter, I get a PowerPoint deck from a firm called Melman Castagnetti. And Melman Castagnetti is a government relations firm. It caters to pretty much everyone who wants to be successful in Washington. It describes itself as bipartisan. And Bruce Melman is recognized as one of the top lobbyists in Washington. In these slide decks, he isn't telling people what it is that he is advocating for various clients. He's sort of giving them macro trends. And so that's why I find them to be very interesting and very well presented. So this one basically looks at the whole question of globalization and why he believes that we are in an era of de-globalization. And so he goes through, there are seemingly, I don't know, looks like about 25 slides on his deck. And he begins with a period from 1989 to 2009 and why that unleashed a world of hyper-globalization as he described it. And he cites things like the end of the Cold War, India liberalizes, China opens, the EU is born, all things that I think that we would generally find to be intuitively reasonable. We entered a period where trade agreements increased, the World Trade Organization, 1994, NAFTA, the single European market in 1993, and the normalization of relations with China in 2000. And he goes on to point out that using international telephone calls and internet users, the cost of international calls has plummeted, as has pretty much the cost of every international interaction, shipping, travel, phone calls. We're talking on Skype, that's free, albeit we're not talking internationally, we could be. Use of the internet, everything has moved towards making the world smaller and easier to access. The more you can access things, the more you want them, and that has had a tendency to cause a far greater emphasis on international trade. At the outset, in the early 90s, the U.S. was predominating. Everything we were doing was great. Military, technology, culture, the stock market, all of that seemed to be going well. He then moves into what did hyper-globalization unleash? And the amount of trade skyrocketed, foreign direct investment as a percentage of GDP all skyrocketed. There are wonderful graphs. By the way, I hope you will have the slide deck in your show notes so that people can follow along and see what is going on. A particular theme that's been interesting to me, in part because I'm listening to a book by Steven Pinker, who advocates it, 
is that things are really better than we think. Global middle class has been growing as extreme poverty has plummeted. There's a really interesting chart that really describes something that looks very much like an X, in which you look at 21% of the world was in the middle class in 1987, and it is now up to 47% by 2019. And that's in the middle class. In terms of living in extreme poverty, it declined from 36% to 8% during that period of time. Now, nobody wants to argue that 8% is still a good number, but it is a far better number than 36%. No question about that. I was going to say one of the things that points out in all of that is that the flattening of the world in many ways, the access to information that's taken place, it really speaks of just this hyper growth and this hyper interconnectivity that I mean, if you were to tell someone in the early 80s that this was going to exist, I think they'd look at you funny. I agree. And it makes for a very interesting question about what do you do about borders? And there's no point pretending to do things about borders that you can't do. Okay, I don't think that there's going to be an easy way to keep thought from elsewhere from entering this country. I don't think we're going to stop the Internet very easily. I think that the individuals who want to have the freedom to see what they want to see are in the end going to prevail over authoritarians who would prefer for them not to see certain things. So it doesn't seem to me as if you're going to be able to keep islands of ignorance of what else is going on in the world. I think people are going to know. And to plan or promise, if you're a politician, that you are going to put up a border that is going to keep that from happening, I think is a big mistake. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that translates to Hong Kong and China in particular, as we move into a transition there where the full handover happens in 25 years and the protests are bubbling up. And I guess at most recent count, there was a protest this weekend that was about 180,000 to 800,000 strong, depending on whom you speak with. It's going to be very difficult to keep those pockets of those bubbles of information, as you say, tap down. It has to impact decision-making. We may not think that every single step taken by Xi Jinping is the thing that we would do, but one thing that has to be completely clear is he has no choice but to take into account how people are reacting around the world to these protests. He can't keep it under wraps. And so he has to think in terms of his strategy, if he were going to choose to simply drive tanks into the middle of the protesters and start killing everybody, one thing that has to factor into his equation is what will the rest of the world think of that? And that might not have been the case. Well, it more probably assuredly wouldn't have been the case 100 years ago. When did it become the case? Well, more recently. But it certainly is now, and there's no point in making an assumption from his perspective that it won't be in the future. Well, made all the more important by the fact that the economy of China has exploded, really. I mean, I, there's a great chart in here that shows that back in 1988, the percentage of China versus the G7 nations, ex-US, it's a mere fraction. And then circa 30 years later, 2018, it dwarfs the G7 in many ways. So its impact is that much larger. And that's important. It's very interesting to imagine the importance of suddenly increasing the supply, very broadly 
stated, the supply of labor has increased by about 2 billion people with China opening up and India. So there's now some piece of 2 billion people that were really not available to do things for and with the rest of the world before, and they are now. I wasn't the best economic student at college, but that seems like a sharp increase in supply. And maybe if the demand is only increasing less quickly, there could be an impact on the price of labor, which I think is what leads into the kind of populism and so forth that we are seeing today. One of the big slides that we mentioned here is the idea that shareholder value is from a sort of location perspective unlocked by having different areas where expertise and advantage can really be helping a company out. The slide essentially talks about how sort of from a tax perspective, things centered in Dublin, from a management perspective in Europe, information technology, essentially everywhere from Bangalore to India to elsewhere, manufacturing in China, intellectual property in Singapore, maybe sort of that location-based stratification that takes place, maybe some thoughts on that. And the last one, I'm looking at the same slide now, shows the CEO in Davos. Now, Davos is probably, I mean, it's coming up in January. It has become at least a little bit pejorative now to be the Davos man. But I can't imagine what you would be doing as a CEO that could be more important than talking with the CEOs and government officials and people who are going to affect your large businesses throughout the world. Arguably, there's lots of discussion, podcasts, so forth, about how China is misbehaving in many ways, both in trade and in stealing intellectual property and so forth. But it remains a very significant market that people would like to figure out how to navigate. And all of these, I mean, they're once you get to a certain size, you sort of don't have that much of a choice to be just a company that focuses on one country. Yeah. So we get to a point where we've sort of had this globalization as a major engine. And the slideshow makes the point that we get to about 2010 and this globalization, and I guess theoretically many of its positive impacts, come to a close. Maybe let's go through a little bit of the factors and maybe some of the indicia of that closing of globalization and where we're starting to veer away from that. He points to a few things that relate to that. And I think it's interesting. And in one situation, he talks about the psychology of scarcity replaced the psychology of abundance. And the chart is GDP growth, exports and imports are both going up significantly from 69 to 88, from 89 to 2008, and then they drop from 2009 to 2018. I found that to be a challenging slide because it seemed to me he was simply presenting a conclusion, and I didn't follow his reasoning as well. And it certainly seems to me that if you look at graphs that show a change in 2008, it's probably a pretty good idea to think about the mortgage crisis as having some effect on that. They certainly happened at the same time. It was certainly a massive disruption. I suppose maybe that is the the basis upon which he says psychology changed. And it's it certainly did. Um, You know, the market was off 45 or so percent. 
that had an impact on everything and it was a mess. And the solutions that we had to use to get out of that mess were probably the best available, but not ones that people would willingly have chosen if they didn't have to. Yeah, one of the things I was going to maybe harp on was the concept of the evaporation of trust. Maybe most writ large in 2008 for most people, where maybe the contract that government had, maybe the economic engine had with the people came undone, further coming undone with examples like Madoff and other ones where the thought that we had stewards who were of sort of broader intent and positive intent that that wasn't necessarily the case. Where, where do you think about that? And I guess it sort of tips to the next slide, which talks about China as sort of full of potential, but not really turning out exactly as the way we thought. To the question of misbehavior, breach of trust, and so forth, I think one of the people that I really got a great deal out of in terms of reading and learning during the eight or so years that I've been writing about politics is a woman called Sarah Chase. And Sarah Chase argues that the key factor in pretty much all things related to an individual's relationship to their government is related to corruption. And she has a very interesting way of looking at Arab Spring and the poor fellow in Tunisia who set himself on fire because the cop was shaking him down and how that spread everywhere because people could really identify with the fact that they were being cheated. We could sit in a kind of an ivory tower and say that's not happening here, but there's kind of a lot of evidence that it is happening here. You look and you see people finishing up their political careers and suddenly they're not only in the top 1%, they're in the top one-tenth of a percent. People who have political careers that have gone on and on, and they've been sort of salaried people, and they suddenly have giant net worths, and you say, where is this coming from? Laws that permit Congress to do things that would send either you or I to jail, like insider trading, and that's okay if you're a congressman. Well, probably it shouldn't be. It isn't going to build a great deal of trust that people are acting in the individual's best interest. So that has struck me always as an important thing. As to China, it clearly has become more authoritarian, and it is the relationship with China is strained. They have their own ambitions. There are reasons that they have their own ambitions. Having ambition is not per se a bad thing. We do it, but it isn't working out as we would hope. Interestingly, I glanced at but didn't read a story that suggests that Paul Krugman might just be saying that Trump has it right on China. That's at least what the headline was. Now, the story itself may be different, but it seems as if pushing back and saying, no, maybe you should be a participant, but not the hegemonist. Is, it certainly prevails far more today than it once did. I mean, it, there's no question that that is a rising concern. Well, and we're, we're dealing with the, I mean, as I sort of look back to the USSR and Russia and sort of a, 
a joint superpower with the United States, although, as it turns out, economically not even close. In China, we have something a little bit different here. We've got a superpower that has demonstrated over time that it has expansionist undertones to a lot of the policy it favors, whether it's economic or or even geographic. We haven't gotten to the point where they've made major military moves yet, but to me, that's a scary thing. And, you know, South China Seas and trade routes and everything related to that, it's something that I feel like no one in this country has a lot of experience in dealing with that anymore, much like a lot of the investing public has has had little experience pre-2008 or even 2002 or 1994 or rising interest rates in the early 80s. These are all foggy textbook notions. I think the expertise in dealing with a legitimate and formidable, I'm not going to go so far as to say adversary, but at the very least a different player on the world stage. It's something that there's just not a lot of experience in this country in dealing with that at the moment. There should be a relatively legitimate concern that some of the things we are being told about that are influenced by expertise that is being supported by the people, by, by China. And it isn't difficult to find experts on this or that in Washington who will produce papers and produce thought pieces that are very supportive of China that can be paid for. I think people sometimes don't trust the independence. And I think that they are in, in some cases, I mean, it's always been reasonable to ask Who's paying for that research? That has always been a good question. It's not a question that they like to have asked of them, but think tanks definitely need to support themselves. And if somebody is trying to get a message out, that's a pretty good way to do it. Sure. As we sort of pull it back into the sort of deglobalization trend, as it relates to the United States domestically, Trump's election really points to that, that there is a certain type of person or a certain segment of the population that I think feels like that globalization is positive and has been beneficial to their interests. You know, many would probably suppose that it's the urban dweller or the bi-coastals or et cetera, and that there's the flyover states and people for whom globalization is less of a or at least they think that it's less of an issue for them, that, that they've been left behind and that that represented itself politically. And as we sort of think about that a little bit, how do we sort of analyze where we're going on that front? The, the polarization of opinion has become so stratified at the moment that it's tough to see what we're looking at in terms of where this country wants to go and whether there's even any thought as to whether... We've just become so segmented as far as populations and needs go, it's tough to sort of stitch together common ground. I think that that's very much true. And I think we are trying to solve a problem if you are in a part of the country that is not thriving, because we've added 2 billion workers who can be quite easily accessed in other countries. Not surprisingly, the hourly wage doesn't go up. There's a bigger supply of labor that can be accessed and goods can be shipped back and forth. And it's not necessary to make stuff here in this country or in parts of this country. And that had a very sharp adverse impact on the lives of those people. And they are, in my view, at least justifiably angry. Now, 
whether you should say that the solution to that is kind of a protectionist solution is, I find, troubling. I think that the solution to that is to say, what can we do to say, yes, the world is changing, we must change with it. How do we make our people better able to make those changes than other people? And that's the way I would look at it, but we don't have a heroic track record of retraining people. We don't have a fabulous track record of educating people well. Our rankings throughout the world continue to decline. There were some studies recently that were showing that an alarming percentage of 15-year-olds read like 10-year-olds. And that is not going to, it doesn't matter, you could put up a giant wall all around the country and never take another foreign product from anywhere. If you have 15-year-olds reading like 10-year-olds, you're not going to thrive. So that is the problem that I would think was better to address than a problem related to becoming a protectionist. Well, one of the other things, too, and one of the slides that Melman points out is that the population in the developed countries is aging quickly. And I was struck by a piece of news about Jack Dorsey announcing that he's moving to Africa. And a lot of the sort of analysis around geopolitical, certainly centers around Europe, the United States, China, some of the major countries there. Africa tends to be somewhat forgotten in all of that. And I was reading somewhere else that an interesting header to look at is that 5G and other technological innovations come to the fore. You may have a skipping of steps as it relates to economic development and informational development where continents that had heretofore been forgotten in a lot of the geopolitical discussions, Africa in particular, may rise to the fore as being this sort of sleeping giant that had not had a lot of the different advantages of either Western thought or technological innovation or Eastern discipline or maybe some of the other bromides, but that going forward, that that's going to be one of the major linchpins uh, in geopolitical development going forward. Well, I mean, just the idea that they're going to simply skip wired communication. We evolve from sort of no communication to wires to over the air. They're going to just skip the wire part. Africa was too big, too underdeveloped, too little infrastructure to really support elaborate networks of electric power and telecommunication and so forth. But when you can communicate by satellite, gee, that kind of works a lot better there. That would be a positive thing. A vast number of the 8% that still live in poverty are in Africa. Well, one of the interesting things that the slide deck also points out is that heretofore, through a lot of different mechanisms, populism really is the scenario that is helping to drive political power at this point. And you know, one component of the Africa discussion that we just had is that if you're able to sort of unlock the potential of, I guess, nearly a billion people that heretofore haven't really had much of a voice or impact either politically, economically, or otherwise that's going to have major geopolitical ramifications. You know, how do you see that going forward? I mean, we see in the U.S. Uh, our sort of political 
spectrum continues to just diverge and go in the other direction. You know, on the Republican side, we have a really balkanized set of sort of interests within that party. And then on the Democratic side, the, the same thing. They're balkanized along different lines. And it's becoming more and more aggressive in terms of leftist policies, becoming more of that party's mainstream. How do you see that going forward? These things, to me, tend to run in cycles, but it's tough to try to forecast out where this is going to go. Well, I think that the first step in it is that you can't plant seeds on the sidewalk, okay? You need to have a fertile field in which to make ideas take root, and you do. It's legit. There are people who have been left behind because they were not well-equipped to the idea of a sharp decrease in the cost of transporting goods, services, and ideas. And suddenly, the person in the Midwest is faced with competition from a person in China that they never considered, and the Chinese person is willing to work for less, and that makes things very bad in the Midwest. So it has to fall on a fertile field, but it is also extremely easily exploited. And I think that politicians seeking power will say, oh, look at this group of people that I can promise to do things for, and I'll do it. We are, as I'm sure you know, we are exporting our political consulting industry to the rest of the world and with amazing distortions. People who look after left-leaning candidates in the United States are suddenly looking after right-leaning candidates in England. And the opposite. I mean, there's no philosophy. It is just who's going to pay them and, and so forth. I mean, we're going we're gonna to see this play out in the British election on, on Thursday. And there are heavy influences from what we have been seeing here in Washington that are now going overseas because those are very good markets. And so if somebody says, we've had a lot of success telling people who feel that they've been left behind, that in fact they are victims and then they suddenly will vote for you, don't you think that might work here? in whatever the new country is. And the answer is, well, let's give it a try at worst, or yes, it does work. And so you see, I have never been able to understand why working class whites and blacks are not in the same party. Isn't it in their interest to say, I am a manual laborer, I may not have gone to college, my interests are pretty much the same as this other guy who's in the same spot. And yet, today, those two groups are in different parties in this country. The whites are Republicans, and Hillary called them deplorables. And at one time, the Democrats had all of them, and also African Americans. And that seemed like a, a fairly logical division to me, but it is no longer a logical. It isn't the division that is prevailing today. There's a lot of good information on these slides here, but to skip ahead because we're running out of time a little bit here, the final slide talks about a lot of different super disruptors that are going to accelerate geopolitical change. And I thought we'd try to cover a couple of these because I think they're interesting. The first one is really 
sort of connoting slower growth, which is the rise in conflict over revenue, which I think is going to become a big, big issue in this country and globally. And, and sort of in the parentheses, they talk about digital tax. I could see massive conflict. We are already seeing it, whether it's either, either through antitrust or taxation of e-commerce or intellectual property disputes. On that front, it seems to be, a, a, I think, a major headwind going forward. We don't seem to deal with the idea of what should we actually be doing in terms of a government and what are the things that we should be doing and let's spend money on those and we'll say here are some things that we shouldn't be doing anymore so maybe you could slow the demand slightly for you could do the right things but slow the demand for more money that would be a good thing but it's very difficult one of the best lessons i learned about washington was when i first arrived in the late 1970s early 1980s i was talking to a guy who had been the staff director of the senate budget committee and he said, don't forget, Haven, at the far end of every federal dollar is somebody's hand. And it's very difficult to break those relationships. And there are plenty of organizations that try to keep vestigial programs in the mix for federal money. So it just increases rather than gets redeployed. And I, I think you could solve a lot if you redeployed more than you simply increased but nobody seems to be much interested in taking that problem on. A couple of other factors that they list out here that are interesting. I think the the concept of increased conflict over water, food, and resources, that will continue to accelerate, especially as population increases. And that ultimately leads to political border issues, migration, and refugee crises. Just to list out a couple of other components, the, the disruption available too through automation and artificial intelligence, blockchain, machine learning. I mean, there are all sorts of sort of vested interests that are currently under severe attack. And I think a lot of the technology that underpins a lot of the economies in this country and beyond, it's going to change massively and very quickly. And then by extension, some of the different issues related to cybersecurity, sort of autonomous systems, risks increasing where, you know, you've got two people in the world who understand what's going on and both of them are at lunch when something blows up. I think an interesting trend going forward is this deep fake component where you've got people who are really struggling to understand where they fit into a technological world, an internet world, a social media world. And we have not even, we're, I don't think we're in inning one on the deep fake scenario where people can take your head and put it in somebody else's porn video. And then it's up to you to prove to the world that that's not you. I think there's going to be a complete recalibration of trust as it relates what one sees in the media, what, what even one can trust being a live video anymore. And I think there's a level of abstraction there that we haven't even touched yet that I think is going to have a, a pretty seismic impact on the way people think and ultimately interact with each other and then doubly speaking, interact with their organizations and governments going forward. If you can't get people to agree that an apple is an apple, then is you kind of don't know where to begin after that. And I think it's very difficult. I have a pretty wide variety of interactions across left-right axis. And my inclination, and many would argue that I'm completely stupid to say this, 
my inclination is if I'm in doubt, I go to Snopes or PolitiFact and so forth, and I believe that those are telling me the truth. But that is not universal. Not by any stretch. And I don't think we've seen, much like I don't think we've seen sort of the 9-11 of cybersecurity where a big bank gets hit, I don't think we've really seen the 9-11 yet of a major celebrity whose identity has been publicly taken from them and destroyed such that the reparation from it has happened fast enough in order to remedy it. And I see that coming, and I'm not sure what form that will take, but it's frightening. Oh, and it used to be that people could worry about themselves, essentially, if I'm doing the right things, it will be perceived. Now they have, there's a separate entity that they have to think about that is not only themselves, but it is the narrative or the image that relates to it. And we don't even have a concept, especially of crimes against the image. I can't punch you in the nose, but I can do an awful lot of terrible things to your reputation. And we don't seem to grasp that that reputation is a very important thing. And to have to prove a negative when the evidence is doctored and difficult to unprove, I don't know. I think that's going to be a major byproduct of our social media development here. And it's going to be able to be extrapolated to, to much bigger institutions with much bigger and probably more lasting effect. It's sure to play out in politics, don't you think? Absolutely. Well, we're coming up on the end of our time here. Thanks to our listeners again. You were listening to Haven Pell on The Pundificator and Fraser Rice at Wealth Actually, talking a little bit about the geopolitical changes that we're seeing coming out of a really interesting slideshow from the Melman Castanetti Group. And in the meantime, we'll be back shortly with more commentary. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to WealthActually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.